a full-scale attack on American democracy is imminent. We will face an avalanche of propaganda, gerrymandering, and voter suppression that could lead to a fascist Republican regime intent on never giving up power. If we don't end the filibuster and pass the For the People Act and other necessary legislation, the prospects for democracy are dim. We now face a Republican Party that has concluded that democracy is no longer in its interest. And we have a Supreme Court that cannot be relied upon to uphold our constitutional democracy. If the Republicans take power, they would dismantle democracy and enact laws that ensure they remain in power indefinitely. As of May 14th, the Brennan Center counted 389 bills with restrictive provisions in 48 states. Recently, over 100 scholars of democracy have issued a statement expressing deep concern over Republican efforts to undermine core electoral procedures in response to the unproven and intentionally destructive allegations of a stolen election. These laws, they say, have so transformed several states into political systems that no longer meet the minimum conditions for free and fair elections. Some laws allow state legislatures or partisan election officials to overturn the results of elections. Republicans are determined to undermine public confidence in the 2020 election and are using the big lie to pass anti-democratic laws. The failure to confront the causes of January 6th would embolden those who spread disinformation about the election. We must fight the big lie and other disinformation with the truth. We must counter the false propaganda on the right with counter-propaganda. It's an essential part of our messaging to confront the big lie and the onslaught of false and misleading propaganda. A lie that goes unchallenged becomes the truth to the masses and a tool for unscrupulous politicians and authoritarian dictators. It's essential that we confront the lies, creating a select committee to investigate the events of January 6th is necessary to fight back against disinformation. Of course, we would prefer a bipartisan commission where both parties seek the truth, but that's not going to happen. The bipartisan committee would have been made up of experts, not members of Congress. This would have shielded it from being discredited. In other ways, however, a select committee is better. With a select committee, there is no requirement for equal representation. The Republicans will have fewer opportunities to obstruct the proceedings. Some Republicans will try to turn the investigation into a circus by ranting about violence at other protests or the groups they label Antifa. 
Pelosi could minimize these tactics by selecting more reasonable Republicans to be on the committee. The Democrats would set up and control the committee. Pelosi will select the members of the committee. The Democrats will control the length and focus of the investigation. The Democrats will also have unilateral subpoena power. This will facilitate a more thorough investigation. At the same time, however, unbalanced representation could cast a shadow of partisanship over the proceedings. Ultimately, we need a pro-democracy movement in America similar to those protest movements around the world capable of pulling thousands of people into the streets. To that end, I will be conducting a democracy activist training on June 27th. Go to tinyurl.com slash democracy story. It is important to get the truth out and confront the lies or the lies become truth in people's minds. Welcome to Bible Study for Progressives, a show where moderates, liberals, and leftists of all faiths and ideologies come together to discuss scripture, spirituality, and politics. We engage scripture in its historical context, plumb its depths for wisdom and guidance, and apply its lessons to current events and social issues. Whether you're a liberal evangelical, a New Age spiritualist, a social justice activist, or a postmodern theologian, there's something in this show for you. Come, be energized in spirit and mind to understand the word and what it means to be a spiritual person in today's world. Jesus and Matthew is waging a nonviolent version of the military campaigns of David and Joshua. The story in Matthew contains some allusions to the military campaigns of David and Joshua. And remember, Jesus is repeatedly called son of David, and Jesus' name is Joshua, or that's what we would be calling him if the name came to us straight from the Hebrew instead of from its Greek form. Like David and Joshua, he will first make conquests, as it were, of smaller towns before making his way to the capital city, Jerusalem, for the final battle. But along the way, rather than killing, he will heal people and cast out demons. That is the contrast with David and Joshua. Jesus' campaign is nonviolent and life-giving. Jesus' nonviolent conquest is aimed at a sort of restoration of Israel. He is taking it back from those who have stolen it, the elites and the Romans. To carry out this nonviolent conquest, he has to build an army. And that is what we will read about and explore in this and the next few episodes. Jesus gives authority to his disciples to wage the nonviolent campaign of healing the people 
and restoring Israel. A more modern frame we might use to understand this passage is that Jesus is a lead organizer of a movement who turns his disciples into movement organizers to build the movement and spread the good news of the new society, which he calls the kingdom of heaven. A new society built in the shell of the old. My name is Bert Newton, and this is episode 23 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. begin with the last few verses of chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and curing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus goes out into all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing people. That, of course, sounds to modern ears like a traveling Pentecostal evangelist. But as I have stressed over and over in this podcast series, in its original setting, this activity was highly sociopolitical. The synagogues, you see, were not so much religious gatherings as we think of them today. They were more like town gatherings, where municipal matters were addressed. In the synagogue, they might pass local ordinances, create local municipal projects such as roads or well digging, They tried cases and administered punishments. And they were instructed in the law and heard various interpretations of the law. The synagogues were fairly democratic, which is why in Matthew, Jesus is able to walk into them and proclaim the good news of the dawning of a new society. You see, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus and his movement are building on peasant traditions and using local institutions to spread their message. As for healing, the healing activity of Jesus, as I have discussed earlier, has highly sociopolitical significance. First of all, it reverses the effects of elite and imperial oppression because it reverses the extreme prevalence of disease and disability due to hunger and malnutrition, which in ancient Palestine was caused by control of the food supply by the elites of the empire. Secondly, healing is also a symbolic sign from the prophets of the messianic days of liberation, said to bring freedom from foreign oppression and the establishment of justice in a new society. The casting out of demons might also sound to us like a profoundly religious activity, but 
as I have also described in previous episodes, it constitutes a central part of Jesus' assault on the forces of oppression. Satan, in ancient Jewish resistance literature, or at least in the literature of the early church, was understood as the spirit that fueled oppressive empires like Rome, as well as all systems of oppression. To cast out demons was to cast out the minions of Satan, who were working oppression among the people. These are things that I've covered in previous podcasts, so I won't belabor them further here. Some of you may feel that I've belabored them too much already, and I apologize, but I never know who's listening that hasn't listened to earlier episodes or how much those who have listened retain this context, so I have to review it at some level. Let's look at the particulars of this passage. Now, Matthew states that Jesus saw the people harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. The image of sheep without a shepherd is a common one in ancient Israelite literature, often used to describe a situation in which the people of Israel have been abandoned by their leaders, who not only fail to take care of the people, but even steal from and exploit them, causing hunger and disease. The prophet Ezekiel declares, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, you shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the sheep. You have not strengthened the weak, you have not healed the sick. You have not bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strayed. You have not sought the lost. But with force and harshness, you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. That's Ezekiel 34, 2-5. This image from Ezekiel describes almost perfectly the situation that Jesus in Matthew addresses. The leaders of Israel have been co-opted by Rome and have abandoned the people. The leaders are well-fed, but the people are hungry and sick, and the leaders do not feed them and heal them as Jesus does. The people are harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And notice that Ezekiel refers to the people as lost, In the next few verses, at the beginning of chapter 10, Jesus will send out his disciples to the lost of Israel. The lost are not individual souls in need of salvation, as many modern Christians might interpret, but rather people abandoned by their leaders, people who are hungry, sick, and oppressed. In other words, by sending out people to proclaim his message, by sending them out to find the lost of their society to heal them, Jesus is sending out organizers to announce the dawning of the new society and to enact prophetic signs of its coming. In verse 37, he uses the image of sending out laborers into the harvest. This image of gathering the lost in at the harvest comes from Isaiah in a passage that uses the harvesting image of threshing. Isaiah 27, 12-13 declares, 
On that day, the Lord will thresh from the channel of the Euphrates to the wadi of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one, O people of Israel. And on that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. This harvesting activity, threshing, is a gathering in of the lost of Israel. The lost in Isaiah are those displaced by foreign invasions, forced to flee to places like Assyria and Egypt. The lost in Matthew, as we have seen and will continue to see, are the internally displaced, landless peasants from families who used to own the land. They are the poor, the sick, and the outcasts of society. Jesus is going to send out workers, organizers, to proclaim to them the dawning of a new society and to enact the signs of it as foretold by the prophets by healing the people. Matthew continues in chapter 10, verses 1 to 6. Then Jesus summoned his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First Simon, also known as Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot the one who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus sends out the twelve. Twelve is not a meaningless number. It recalls the twelve tribes of the Israelite confederation, most of which were lost in the Assyrian invasion centuries before the story in Matthew takes place. And remember, the term lost in the prophetic literature refers to the Israelites who have been scattered and lost among the nations. So by sending out 12 disciples to the towns of Israel to look for the lost of Israel there, Matthew signals that the lost in this story are those internally displaced and that Jesus wants to find them, so to speak and to organize them. He is sending out 12 organizers to find the 12 lost tribes, as it were. The whole nation has been lost, not just the 10 northern tribes. And Jesus wants to reconstitute Israel. This sending out of the 12 is the sending out of organizers to reorganize the whole nation, the whole society. Jesus gives these 12 organizers the authority that he has, the authority to drive out demons and heal people. We have already seen hints of the dispersal of authority to the people when Jesus referred to the people as the light of the world, and also when, after witnessing a healing, the people praised God because God had given such authority to regular people. Here, Jesus gives his authority to his first 12 organizers, As the story proceeds, the theme of the democratization of authority will continue. Jesus continues in verse 7. As you go, 
Proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. The primary reason for sending out these organizers is to proclaim the dawning of the new society, the kingdom of heaven. As they go proclaiming the dawning of the new society, they practice it, thereby performing signs of its coming. Jesus instructs them in verse 8, Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You have received without payment. Give without payment. As they reverse the effects of oppression on human bodies, signaling the advent of the messianic days of liberation, they are to do it for free. During this time in antiquity, professional healers would charge fees for their services. In the version of the story of the hemorrhaging woman in the Gospel of Mark, we are told that this woman exhausted all her money on professional healers without actually being healed. Jesus and his disciples will provide the service effectively and without charge. Free and effective health care is a hallmark of the new society. Jesus continues with his instructions in verses 9 to 10. Take no gold or silver or copper in your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for laborers deserve their food. Matthew scholar Warren Carter suggests that these instructions are designed so that the men don't draw attention to themselves as travelers or organizers. Remember, the foreign occupation brought with it many aspects of a police state, with spies watching out for subversive activity. Normal travelers or organizers would be carrying a bag or other supplies, so Carter suggests Jesus tells them to travel without these things. While I think that Carter's suggestion has some merit, I think that more likely Matthew is merely using a little hyperbole here to make the point that they are not to rely on the money economy. Another hallmark of the new society is an economy of sharing, where everyone is provided for according to need. After telling them that they are not to charge money for healing people, Jesus instructs his organizers not to take money or supplies with them, and rather to rely on the hospitality of the people. Their pay is food, shelter, and other in-kind sustenance, not money. That is why this admonition not to take anything with them ends with the words, laborers deserve their food. At this point, it is worth pointing out that these instructions bear much resemblance to the practices of other radical groups of the time, such as cynics or the Essenes. Here is how Josephus, the great first-century Jewish historian, describes the Essenes. He says, These men are despisers of riches, and so very communicative as raises our admiration. Nor is there any one to be found among them who has more than another. For it is a law among them that those who come to them must let what they have be common to the whole order, insomuch that among them there is no appearance of poverty or excess of riches, but everyone's possessions are intermingled with every other's possessions, 
and so there is, as it were, one patrimony among all the brethren. They have no one certain city, but many of them dwell in every city. And if any of their sect comes from another place, what they have lies open for them, just as if it were their own. And they go into such as they never knew before, as if they had been ever so long acquainted with them, for which reason they carry nothing at all with them when they travel into remote parts. This description of the Essenes, relying on a sharing rather than a money economy, and traveling about to various cities, taking nothing with them, and instead relying fully on hospitality, both describes what we have been reading in chapter 10 of Matthew, and is also a good setup for what comes next in Matthew. Jesus continues instructing his disciple organizers in verses 11 to 15. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who in it is worthy and stay there until you leave. As you enter the house, greet it. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust from your feet as you leave that house or town. Truly I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Now, of course, Josephus' description of the Essenes assumes an existing network of mutual aid throughout the towns and cities. What Matthew describes is a radical mission to set up such a network in order to usher in the new society or to create a new society in the shell of the old, as modern radicals sometimes like to say. Jesus instructs his disciple organizers to look for hospitality. The language of finding a worthy house may sound strange to us, but it is typical of language in an honor-shame culture to describe something like this. The threat of judgment on the houses and towns that don't receive them may also sound harsh to us, but remember that this was written in a culture that makes extensive use of hyperbole. Harsh statements of divine judgment to express displeasure are still common in the Middle East, but they should not necessarily be taken literally. We should understand this language in Matthew as rhetorical hyperbole. And, as we are about to see in the rest of chapter 10, the mission of the organizers to establish the new society will be very costly for them. And the lives of their friends and family will hang in the balance. So some extreme language is very understandable. In chapter 10, we will read of the high cost of waging this nonviolent campaign of healing, casting out demons, and proclaiming the good news of the new society. And that will be the subject of the next episode. For now, my name is Bert Newton. The music for this podcast series is provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. Please spread the word and rate this podcast wherever you can, including on our Facebook page, which is named Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. This has been Episode 23 of Bible Study 
parody, and subversion in Matthew's Gospel. This has been Bible Study for Progressives. If you enjoyed the program, please subscribe to our podcast or put us in your favorites and write a five-star review. Tell your friends about us and share us on social media. Follow us on Facebook and click the donate button at modernlectionaries.blogspot.com. Your support will help us reach more people, produce more and better shows, and cover the cost of production. Feel free to send me a note or comment on the show. I would love to hear from you. Until next time, this is Rich Proceda. Thank you for listening.